Hey everybody, it's Brian popping in before this episode uh, with a, a little bit of a plea. If you've been listening to the show lately, you've you've certainly heard this one before, so hopefully you're able to sit through it for the next minute or so while I ask you to uh, please, if if uh, if you can, if you've got any any spare cash, uh, please consider donating to the show. We've never asked for money before. We we don't run advertisements right now, but um, it. Uh, costs money to produce a podcast. It costs money to host a podcast, and it, and it costs money to pay somebody to edit the podcast to do a better job editing the show than I am able to do. Um, for example, I'm editing this one together, so you will be able to hear what it sounds like when I'm the person editing the show. Um, if, you, if you've been a fan of the show, if you've been listening for a while, and you want us to continue doing this, please consider donating even a dollar. We'll put all the Patreon info up on our, our Tumblr site. Uh, that's it. That's all That's all the plea I got of me this week. So um, stick around, because coming up right now, I've got a really awesome interview with Glenn Weldon. We'll be talking about Batman. book's been done for about a year, okay. more or less. Uh, it was scheduled to come out in uh, June, as a matter of fact. And uh, then I get a call from the uh, head of uh, Simon & Schuster saying, Yeah, why is this book coming out in June? Mm-hmm. Um, because originally they thought it would make a good Father's Day book. Sure. Um, kind of. <laughs> they clearly don't know anything about the origin of Batman. Kind of. Yeah, I, yeah. I kind of thought that was funny, too. Oh. Uh, but yeah, so they, they did move it up, which means in the last month uh, they had to scramble... And put together the audiobook and do all the publishing and promotion and a lot of logistics that were supposed to take place over the next three months happened in a week. So they are uh, good at what they do and they got the book out. Has, has publishing been able to speed up at all as everything is digitized or is it the same? Digital helps a lot, yeah. yeah. Uh, and uh, the fact that we can kind of scramble together a uh, art insert into this thing at the literally the last minute was uh, just a testament to uh, the way those people uh, crashed uh, on this thing. It was great. Mm-hmm. It was great. And it looks good too. Is it? Is is it? Uh, it's got to be a weird sort of pressure to be tied to a movie like that. In a way, I mean, obviously, it's not like cross promoted in, in no, that sense. No, but, no, 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 no. But it is sort of like spiritually coming out around the time of this movie, and clearly, they wanted to ride a little bit of that excitement. Of course, and you know, I, I talk in the book about the approach that that movie I think represents yeah. uh, the the fanboy's idea of Batman, the grim, gritty badass. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the book is really dedicated to the idea that there isn't just one, that there's a Batman for everybody, that yep. he is not uh, only one thing, and that he goes on a cycle from light to dark. And we are now at the height of the darkness, which means inevitably that uh, we're going to see some light again. This is not a Batman for everybody. <laughs> it's not. It's uh, And this is certainly indicative of a larger term that DC has taken over the past decade or so. Right. They learned the wrong message from Green Lantern. Green Lantern <laughs> sucked, but it didn't suck because it had jokes. It yeah. didn't suck because it had humor. It sucked for a whole host of reasons. But and yeah, from, from the latter-day Batman movies. I mean, the, the last couple of sequels, I assume. Well, right. But see, the, the, the dark, grim um, approach kind of fits. Nolan's approach, a kind of a chilly aesthetic, yeah. uh, fits the character, at least the character as he's thought of today. Uh, it doesn't fit Superman. Uh, you can't treat these two different characters with the same tone. It just mm. doesn't work. So, uh, you know, and I haven't seen the film yet. 
Uh, I'm going to see it this weekend. It does seem to me that, um, you know, if we can take the past as prologue, uh, Watchmen is a book about losers, uh, screwed up losers. And when you make a movie of them and you give them slow-mo badass fight scenes, they become um, badasses. And that's, that's a fundamental misread of, of what that book's about. And I do think uh, we are, we're, in, we're in for some... You know, they say the, the comics you read when you were 13 are the comics that you love for the rest of your life. God help I, me. I'm in Liefeld mode forever. <laughs> I think you and Zack Snyder have something yeah. in common there, Brian. I yeah. think he's basically making an image comic, uh, all splash pages, all sure. spectacle, no story. But uh, it remains to be seen. I haven't seen it yet. Well, I, you know, I, I, Frank Miller is kind of the clear influence on the turn that Batman's taken over the past 10 years or so, right? Yeah, but I think what was interesting about Dark Knight Returns is that he wasn't necessarily writing that book for nerds. Mm. Uh, he was addressing the consciousness, the, the idea that normals had in their head of who Batman was. Mm -hmm. So uh, he was kind of pointing over the fence of the nerd enclave that uh, comics had kind of put ourselves in. You know, all these nerds just... Once in the 70s, once we started uh, writing comics for adults and t older teens and stopped writing comics for kids, then we were just talking to ourselves. So we were talking to ourselves with a grim, gritty, uh, Denny O'Neill kind of mm -hmm. Batman. But the wider culture was still pow zap. So he addressed the Pow Zap, and he basically postulated what would happen if the Adam West Batman came back and found out that things didn't work anymore. And that's why I think it took off. I mean, it was, you know, it was a miniseries event. It, it looked different than other comics. Uh, and it was an attempt to address the idea of Batman, not the character of Batman. The character of Batman belongs to nerds. It's in the comic books. It's endless iteration. The Joker escapes. The Joker comes back. The Joker escapes. The Joker comes back. Uh, because when you are writing a comic book hero, you are basically writing a soap opera, which means it's the pull of narrative, the endless churn of narrative, without the thing that makes a narrative a story, without an ending. These characters can't change because they are heavily licensed nuggets of intellectual property. Um, there's style guides. There's all these licensing deals that keep these characters from fundamentally changing. Mm. So uh, when you give a character like that an ending, all of a sudden, that, that's the difference between nerds and normals, I, I submit. Uh, nerds love the adventures. I love knowing that the book, uh, books I'm reading are part of this long history of endless cycling, of endless reboots, of endless retcons. And debating the, the finer points of that with other nerds in the back of a comic book store is a thing that I grew up doing. Uh, normals say, give me the bullet points. Walk me through it. Uh, they want a story, a beginning, middle, and an end. And uh, I, th I think that's the key to the appeal of some of these movies. The movies, when you make a, when you take a character like Batman out of his medium, out of the comic book medium, and you put him into another one, a television show, a, mm -hmm. a movie, you are imposing on that uh, the three-act structure of an action film. Uh, you are dumping a lot of your own stuff. The di different directors dump a lot of stuff on top of the character. Uh, so it becomes a Tim Burton film. It becomes a Joel Schumacher film. Sure. It becomes a Christopher Nolan film doesn't become a Batman story because, again, Batman doesn't have a tidy three-act structure. Uh, the, uh, the person who killed his parents is not the Joker. When you try to make it the Joker, you are, you are doing a, a Charles Bronson film. You're turning what is the most important thing about Batman, which is that he doesn't, it's not a vendetta that he's seeking. It's not revenge he's seeking. Uh, it's a crusade. It's a selfless act, not a selfish one. And when you turn it into a selfish act, you are undercutting who the character is. Do you 
I, so, I sort of get the sense with, with Superman that, that you know, Superman is such a kind of a broad generic template for people. Um, I, I finally watched the uh, the documentary about the making of the abandoned Tim Burton movie. Yeah. Um, and it became clear to me watching that that, that uh, you know, Superman, yeah, you've got the suit, you've got the powers, but then people can kind of project onto that what they want. Exactly. I mean, Batman... There's certainly a degree of that going on, but people seem to, at least in their mind, have a pretty clear idea of what Batman is and isn't. Yeah. Uh, what was fascinating to me is that uh, for the first 30 years of his life, he was um, you know, a cop in a cape. He didn't yep. have a discernible personality because mm-hmm. co- they didn't have personalities back then. Um, <laughs> people didn't have personalities back in the well, 30s? Well, uh, the heroes. The heroes didn't. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah, there were comic book characters written for children. Um, and when... Uh, Denny O'Neill came along and said, I need to give this guy a, a motivation. Yeah. Because for, for the first 30 years, the, the whole uh, my parents died thing was a plot element, a box to tick to get him into the cape. Mm-hmm. And, and all heroes had it, just the triggering incident sure. to get him into the cape. Uh, at the same time that uh, nerds, the comic book industry was abandoning kids and turning inward, uh, was the wake of the Batman television show, which was a huge cultural influence and uh, to this day is responsible for headlines in newspapers leading off with Pow Zap. There's, mm-hmm. there's that, that show has a lot to answer for. But um, they needed to change it up. And so what they decided to do was to go back to that very early beginning and make this thing, this triggering incident, uh, an all-consuming yeah. Passion. The defining characteristic. Of the the defining characteristic. Uh, to give him an obsession, again, pop psychology, the 70s, the late 60s, early 70s, uh, you, are, you are giving this character a defined personality by making him, essentially, a nerd. Somebody who is uh, a loner, uh, not great with people, uh, gadget-obsessed. Uh, and I posit in the book that uh, the, the people who were reading comics back then feel, felt an affinity. There are other superheroes who are nerds. Mm-hmm. Peter Parker's a nerd. Uh, there are no other superheroes who are obsessed to that degree. And that obsession is something I think I recognize in the character and we recognize in the character. But when you take that obsession and you turn it into, uh, well, he's a grim, gritty badass, and that's your, that's your entire understanding of the character, you are ignoring the thing that makes the, the character the character, which is, mm. uh, you know Dean Tripp, right? Yeah, sure. Okay. Dean Tripp wrote this amazing um, webcomic called Something Terrible in which he talks about as a, child, as a survivor of childhood sexual abuse, he saw in Batman somebody who could overcome something terrible in their childhood mm. and become of use to other people. Yeah. He is dedicating himself to this notion of um, never again. What happened to me is never going to happen to anybody else. He's, he's almost leveraging the terrible thing and using Absolutely. it. Absolutely. He's using it. it right. Yeah. That's exactly it. And in that sense, he is not a character of rage. Mm. He's not a character of uh, violence. He is a character of hope. It's a weird hope. Yeah. It's a sad hope. It's a, it's a Sisyphean hope. It's a never-ending battle. But that's who he is. Uh, and there's, there's something that, because again, he's a comic book hero. He is not an action movie hero. Action movie heroes can kill. Uh, and uh, when they do, we feel a kind of cathartic joy when we see somebody take out the bad guy. Mm. Uh, the genre constraints of superheroes exist for a reason. You have to play within them. And when you do, you can do all kinds of creative things. Or in the case of a lot of comic books today, not. But that's the thing that's the deal that's the deal you're making with your audience and to uh, ignore that to um, to dispense with that is to not tell a Batman story which is fine but don't pretend you are well so, so th- this might be kind of a silly question and in some sense it 
flies in the face of oh just sorry just yeah. get it from the pot that's just the okay. leftovers yeah it's already steeped Thanks, uh, yeah you try right. it without it yeah. got it there you go uh, this sort of flies in the, in the face of a little bit what, of what you said before, um, you know, being that um, in a lot of ways, Batman is a very elastic character. It changes with the times. It changes with the writers. But do you feel that any of the adaptations has been particularly faithful or has been, I mean, is there a best or is there a definitive Batman? Yeah, I, I'm not going to surprise you. Uh, I grew up with the Adam West Batman. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and there's a thing that happens to us. Uh, you seemed a little dismissive of it before. No, okay. no, no, no. Uh, the exact opposite of that. When, when you that. said it had a lot to answer for. Mostly the Pow Zap thing. Okay. Uh, the the, the c- cultural appropriation of it. The There's a thing that happens. It has a, a famously bifurcated appeal, that yeah. show. Kids love it. Cops. Kids love it because of Pow Zap, because yeah. of the action, because of the design, whatever. Adults love it because it's funny. Yeah. All it was doing was taking the comics of the day, of 1964 and 1965, and cutting, pa- cut and pasting them on screen. It's a little heightened. A little heightened, but that's because it was cashing in on yep. the pop art movement. The pop art movement valued things that were cheap, mass-produced, colorful, slick. Mm-hmm. They valued comic books. This is Roy Lichtenstein, etc. So Hall and... Exactly. Yeah. So uh, what they did was they didn't satirize comic books. They didn't make fun of comic books because ca- comic books at that time were beneath contempt. They were mm. junk culture that nobody paid, took seriously. What they did was they said, what if we took all of these conventions that are in this story and just played it absolutely straight? As if, and this is something that Dozier uh, told his uh, writers and and the production crew, as if we're dropping the bomb on Hiroshima. That's how serious we want everybody to take it. We're not winking at the audience. We're not mugging. Hmm. Toward the end they did. Toward the end they kind of, it's a weird balance to strike, this kind of uh, grave silliness. And uh, toward the end they kind of, Vincent Price comes along and... Yeah. <laughs> I, I love me some Vincent Price. Don't get me wrong. But, okay. Yeah. So the kids love it. Parents love it. But something happens to t- nerds as they age out mm-hmm. of childhood. They see that show and they think it is making fun sure. of the character. Yeah. And uh, that it is not sufficiently... He's not sufficiently badass. And it curdles into this pitched loathing. And I would say that the American superhero has been trapped in this perpetual adolescence. This feeling that these characters have to be taken gravely seriously or not at all. You, there was only one tone. There was only one approach to all these different characters and all these different backstories and all these different motivations. This is all we can do. So the existence of the Batman 66 show is a, is a, is a constant um, reassurance to me. But And a bit of an enigma. I mean, there's nothing, there's nothing quite like it. it. It's very singular. It was a cultural phenomenon because nothing like it had come along yeah. before, and nothing. And when they tried to do it again in the '70s, they did a show called "Challenge of the Superheroes," I think it's called, mm. uh, where Burt Ward and Adam West come back, don the suits. So they're only ten years older; they don't look yeah. bad. Um, but it is just this Las Vegas schmaltzy, uh, just Charlie Callis as Sinestro. It's it's striking. Um, it's grave and not good because again. It, this this fad fizzled out yeah. in record time. They did something like 132 episodes in two years, uh, and produced three seasons more or less, plus a movie. So that's why it lived on its syndication for so long. Mm. But I think um, again, when you make when you're, when you're Tim Burton and you make a Batman film, you're, you're making a Tim Burton film with all that emo outsider, gothy stuff. It happens to fit really well with his world vision. It does. It does. It's a little kinkier than. Then I think you, you could, especially the second film, is a little weirder. And I, yeah. I go into this uh, 
a bit in the book. And Joel Schumacher does, you know, what he does. We'll, we'll, we'll God, get to that in a, God, in a God love him for yeah. doing it. And then, you know, Christopher Nolan uh, tries to fit the character into the zeitgeist. He tries to fit it into the war on terror, tries to yeah. fit it into the surveillance state. Doesn't really have a coherent point of view. Well, that's exactly right. And, and that, was, that was, I think, what got me... I, I, I enjoyed the first one, but what got me really about the second one was that I think it's very possible to remove the character of Batman and the character of Joker insofar as we know them through you know the comic books and still have basically the same exact movie. And that's an issue, right? Yeah. Because it seems to me that they were both drafting on these big ideas, not engaging with them. Yeah. Just sort of like, these things are out there in the world, so let's pay lip service to them. Well, the whole, the whole, the, the whole second movie is sort of based around that idea that, um, you know, will you push the button idea. That the, the entire movie is kind of built around that in a sense. Exactly. Yeah. And so again, uh, it, it seems... It's, it seems less than fully thought out. Yeah. Uh, now, every iteration of Batman has uh, that's not in a comic book medium has uh, has imposed some other sensibility on top of him. Sure. There's only one instance where I think uh, we stripped away everything extraneous and got to the essence of the character, and I'm not going to surprise you, it's Batman the Animated Series, which is as close as we're going to get to the Batman of the comic books for a host of reasons. Yeah. A, there was nerds writing it, there were comic book writers writing it. It's two-dimensional so that all, all you're doing is you're making, you're, you're dissolving the comic book panels and turning it into one fluid And, and there aren't studio constraints in the way that there are for a multi-million dollar movie. But the other thing is that the format of the half-hour animated mm. episode yeah. is as close as we're ever going to get to comics because, again, this is endless iteration. These characters don't change. They don't, they don't in fiction... The important thing is the character is not the same person at the end as they are in the beginning. Batman has to be exactly the same yeah. person at the end of each episode. And, and, and you know, I, I would point, I, this is still kind of fresh in my head because I just saw it, but I, I would again point to that. It uh, was, was not a necessarily a great documentary, but it, it, it really highlighted, I think, the issues with, with working in the studio system wherein, you know, you're bringing on a producer, um, He's the source of the money, and he wants to see a giant spider in the film, for he example. Wants to see a giant so there's spider. a lot of there are a lot of cooks and something like that, and it's hard to be at, true to a single person's vision, which I think is probably why Batman was successful, is because there was largely like one creative force behind it. Exactly, and in the first and the Batman '89, the first Batman film, they had a screenwriter who was a complete nerd, Sam yeah. Hamm, and he had he knew that you can't make uh, the Joker, the guy who yeah. killed his parents, knew yeah. it. For a fact, went to the mat trying to say, you're, "This is you're, you're you're screwing it up. This is just not who Batman Was is." Was that the first place where that that mm -hmm. okay yeah that invented that idea? Yeah, yeah, it's a dumb idea. <laughs> and uh, the producer said, "Absolutely not," because that you know, because yeah. again, it's 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 their own screwed up version of Chekhov's gun. We need we sure. do, whatever's in the first act has to come back in the third. And and you know, and and you have to tell a really long story within the constraint of an hour and a half. Absolutely, and it needs to be satisfying to people yeah. who don't get off on this endless churn of story. Uh, of narration, of narrative, uh, it has to be tidy. It has to fit and end in a, yeah. with, a, with a period. And, uh, you know, nerds are all about ellipses. So, I mean, it's, it's, it does feel like the, the Tim Burton one is kind of a nice middle ground. And, you know, may, may, maybe this has something to do with, with my, my own age and, and that yeah. having been kind of definitive. But it does uh, fit well. I mean, I, I mean, it's, you know, in a sense, it is kind of a transitional film between... The, the goofy cartoon colors 
and the super self-righteous, super serious movies that we're seeing right now. It it, it balances between the two, I think, in a, in a pretty nice way. Yeah, because it's got uh, the Joker shaking his 57-year-old butt, 47-year-old butt. Um, to Prince. To, to Prince. Yeah. Uh, it is a dark film, literally, but not necessarily tonally. Yeah. Um, and the same thing with Batman Returns, which is kinkier. But again, that's the one where they said, you know what? You can make the Batman film you always wanted to make, <laughs> and he did. He, he and it doesn't hang together, and it doesn't have an ending. Uh, but it's and it's fascinating to look back at it now because he had only made uh, Pee Wee's Big Adventure and yeah. Scissorhands, and I think Beetlejuice as well. Yeah, Th- that's right. it. And yeah. then and 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 they, all the stuff that's sort of bubbling under the surface, all of his um, fixations kind of come out all over the screen <laughs> in a big old way in his film. But yeah, I, I do think. With the animated series, uh, again, there's no change, there's no fundamental rising action, falling action, but there is incremental deepening of characterization. Incremental um, uh, relationships between characters getting deeper and more complicated in the way that it happens in comics. Um, Mm. It happens over the course of... What you have with a series like that is time. Just sheer hours of devoted to this thing. And, uh, yeah, it's... I think that's as close as we're ever going to get because we can get even tonal shifts. There can be lighter episodes yeah. and darker episodes in a way that uh, the comics medium can do. It's, it's interesting. I had, to, I had this look this up um, probably a couple months ago. I was having a conversation with somebody around the, uh, the 66 series and was trying to figure out. I, I couldn't think of any references, and, and now I realize for good reason, to the fact that his parents were killed. But they are there. They are there. They're the there, f- I think, in the pilot episode. In the very first episode, yes. Yeah. Uh, because it's really hard to reconcile the fact that he's an orphan whose parents were murdered with this cartoon Batman series, right? Uh, yes. And, uh, but what's fascinating to me is that nerds have always known better than filmmakers and television makers. I found a fanzine called Batmania that had nothing to do with ba- the Batmania of the fad, but mm-hmm. it was called Batmania because they were just nerds who like Batman. Sure. And they were boasting about their close relationship with the producers of this amazing show that's going to be coming on TV. And it's going to be all about Batman. And can you imagine, with such excitement, such raw, unfettered excitement, uh, can you imagine seeing the word pow on the screen when Batman punches somebody? Hmm. It's going to be great. And you can see, the, I, I, I quoted a lot from the issue that happened right before the show yeah. premiered, the issue that happened during the premiere, and then sort of, the, it's like the slow motion car crash where they mm. kind of, feel that you were doing it wrong and and what fa- and that fascinates me and I don't have an answer for this. I don't have an answer for where their notion of a dark that Batman should be darker than this uh, comes from. But I, uh, but uh, in uh, a 1960 68 or 69 issue of Detective Comics, I think it is. Mark Evanier, who's then like 18 years old, writes in and says, Batman should be a creature of the night. He should be, you know, mm. hunting uh, around warehouses. He should be a detective. Get the detective out and the superhero out. Uh, detective in and the superhero out. Which, I mean, the 1939 Batman, he don't, he's only like that dark, badass Avenger dude for yeah. like 11 months. Robin <laughs> comes along and then it, it all goes, <laughs> he all, all of a sudden he's a proud, smiling little league dad. Yeah. Um, but they still had this notion... Maybe because the show was so extreme, so extreme, so uh, funny, so such an overt thing that is taking a thing that they love and turning it into a laughing stock. I think that's part of it. Um, I, I think a lot of it does play into something that you 
spoke to earlier, which is the binary between Batman and Superman. Yeah. Is that, you know, in, in some ways Batman is defined by what Superman is and, and vice versa. I mean, that, and obviously that's clouding again, but mm-hmm. um, it's pretty clear who Superman is. And based on that, it's pretty clear that Batman is not that, that Batman sure. has to be the one, you know, in the streets in the dark of night. I mean, he is, he is, he is, he's a darker character. Even when he's got the blue suit, he's, he's still a darker character than Superman. Yeah. I mean, but they were going with the first basically 30 years of the character when he was time traveling and turning into zebra Batman and genie Batman Mm. and Batwoman and Mogo, the bat ape, Mogo, Mm. the bat ape and uh, Ace, the bat hound. Uh, It, there was no consistent, what was consistent is that he didn't have a characterization, that he was just a cop in a cape uh, who traveled in time and traveled to outer space, mm-hmm. but it, he was basically uh, the iconography. It was basically his look defined him more than his story defined him. Yeah. And just the idea that this wildly inconsistent kind of cipher character could inspire this devotion that you see uh, that you saw back then mm-hmm. in 1967 68 and you see today I mean today we have a pretty clearly defined idea of who Batman is because there's in the comics at least there's a consistent has been a relatively consistent uh, portrayal because again we gave him a motivation once you give him a motivation you define the character uh, before then he didn't really have a motivation he was yes he uh, it was thought evil he stood for righteousness, yeah. which is not a motivation at sure. all. It's not really much of anything. It's just yeah, language. It is, in a sense, Superman's motivation. It's exactly Superman's yeah. motivation. He goes from being a mysterious, weird figure of the dark to a uh, crusader for justice. And that's, that's, that slot's already filled. Was he... Was, was, uh, was, was the way that Batman was uh, defined in comics, do you think, at all informed by um, that... You know that that kind of first round of of Marvel comics from you know the 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 really angsty superheroes. I mean, did that did that have an impact on the Batman character? Yes. Uh, later on, originally he was just a ripoff of the Shadow. There were a hell of a lot of ripoffs of the Shadow. Sure. Uh, he was not even the only Bat themed ripoff of the Shadow. Mm-hmm. There were two others. Uh, he took off in the seventies. Exactly right. Um, this show, which had just gone off the air, this fad uh, sales of Batman comics plummeted because they were inflated for the very first time because of the show. Um, for the first time, he was Batman was outselling Superman. He'd never done that before. Um, but as soon as the show goes off the air, all those fair weather fans, yeah. as they would call them, yeah. uh, go away. And we're now in this kind of lull period. And when you want to, uh, and this is this is part of the cycle. Um, Batman goes over and over again from Lone Avenger to Father Figure to kind of patriarch of this brood of crime fighters, then back to Lone Avenger. He goes from light to dark, pretty much along the same line. Uh, The Marvel characters had personalities. You could argue that they actually had personality disorders, but that counts in comics. Um, So the X-Men represent... Feelings yep. of alienation, Spider-Man is all guilt, and mm-hmm. Aunt May's dying again, and the Hulk is literally a creature of pure rage, uh, and they bicker. And this is what what people wanted once the, the audience aged. And this is all that Stanley really did. I mean, not all he did, but he identified a market. More than he is a yep. storyteller, he identified that the audience had changed, and that meant they would want not 
childhood wish fulfillment, I can run the fastest, I can fly, mm-hmm. I can lift things heavy, I can lift heavy things. But adolescent wish fulfillment, which is um, I want the girl, I want to be accepted, I want everybody to look up to me. And that's what... Uh, so because Batman, as he was portrayed in the 70s, and even as he's portrayed now, is the ideal of American masculinity as it's pictured by 12-year-old kids who get their lunch money stolen mm-hmm. a lot. Fast car, hot chick. Fast car, hot chick. Yeah. Incredibly muscular, laconic, basically Clint Eastwood, you know, mm-hmm. brooding. Um, always wins in a fight. Always, yeah. always, always. Doesn't, doesn't look like he's trying necessarily. Doesn't look like he's trying. This is their idea. So that's what Batman speaks to. Bruce Wayne speaks to their desire to look good in the tux. Yeah. I mean, that's pretty much the thing. But I talked to so many uh, nerds for this book, and <laughs> every one of them said, uh, you know why? Uh, Batman's my guy. Batman's relatable. You know, uh, that's con- shocking to me to hear. He's con- contrasting him to Superman, who is you know yeah. a jock, I guess. But in but, but again, com- you know, compared to a character like Spider-Man, for example, Batman is really the least relatable, one of the least relatable characters of all time. This, He's a billionaire. This is the point I made to them again. And yeah. Again, he does have a superpower. It's wealth. Yeah. It's magical wealth that makes everything possible. Mm-hmm. It works in any given Batman story like magic yeah uh to make it all it's not simply a plot point it's 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 the thing that sets him apart from so us their argument is that he's just not uh he, he doesn't have every superpower that he could possibly want to lean on that that he's just kind of a guy in a suit i think uh that he wouldn't be the phenomenon he is in any country besides america because mm. in america there is a belief that yeah. we could all become billionaires if we just try really hard that's what he's king into, I think. I don't think you're going to see something like this, and a character like this would not be anywhere near a phenomenon in some place like Great Britain with a very rigid class structure. Uh, it's the American dream. Has, has he translated to other... I mean, there, there's the, the strange Japanese phenomenon that chick Amazing kid. Japanese phenomenon, yeah, which I couldn't... I had a whole thing in, there in the book about it, but it just got... I had to kind of also, down. you know, Chip Kid kind of already—it's been done. Did that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, yeah, yeah. I, but he's different. He, I mean, he's a very—he's a different character. He's completely different. He's not even the same what, thing. Define, de- what defines the Japanese Batman character? Well, I mean, it's the iconography, basically. You know, it's—it's it's the look. Yeah. It's—it—it's. Uh, it, but does he have uh, defining characteristics beyond that, or he just kind of looks and acts like Batman? He kind of looks and acts like Batman yeah, because okay. there were no style guides back then, and sure. so they can just import him and just yeah. Uh, yeah, do all kinds of crazy things that engage the sort of Japanese way of being in yeah. a way that they that, that just, w- just wouldn't work over here. Um, it's too specific to that culture for us to kind of get it. Just like I think there's a lot of things about Batman that's too specific to our culture for them to get. So uh, you know, obviously the movies have, have done well worldwide, but has there been any runoff beyond that? Has, has there been Batman success outside of the U.S.? Well, uh, yeah. I mean, basically, these are the kind of films like uh, Batman vs. Superman, which yeah. is all spectacle, very little story, one assumes. Haven't seen it yet. Don't know. Uh, I mean, but it's Lex like, Luthor has hair, then he doesn't have hair. Exactly. There's a lot going on. There's in that a film. lot going on. It's, kind, it's the kind of film that is going to be successful. And yeah. <laughs> it's, it's safe to say. Yeah, you can safely say. But, I mean, it's the comics uh, deal with a character the movies engage the idea. DC Comics owns the character. They mm-hmm. do not own the idea. The mm-hmm. idea permeates the cultural ether and is bigger and is and it belongs, Brian, to everybody. Oh. Um, and, uh, but it also is... It's, it, it's, I, I, I'm interested, you know, I would ask my Aunt Faye who Batman is, and in, if I asked her in 1972, she'd say Adam West, and if I asked her in... 1989, she'd say Michael Keaton. Mm. If I asked her in now, she'd say Christian Bale. 
She wouldn't know any of their names, but she'd say that. That's she, she would quite literally the actor filling out the cowl. Exactly. Yeah. The look is yeah. is what to mm. to normals who don't engage with this kind of thing in any way, who just want to go and be distracted for an hour and a half, or in the case of this movie, two and a half hours. Uh, that's that's all. That's all this is about. Mm. And something interesting happened to uh, the way these movies have co-opted uh, nerds. Uh, they basically foisted the uh, 89 Batman film onto the nerd community. Uh, nerds rebelled because you hired Michael Keaton. That means you're going to be doing Pow Zap again. Uh, we don't like the look. We, they, they, you're nerds, saying prior to the film actually coming out? Prior to the film coming yeah. out, there were just petitions yeah. and, and uh, letters of protest. Uh, they sent Bob Kane out. They gave him a title of consultant. They sent Bob Kane out to conventions to say, no, it's going to be great. Um, he, he had to be, what, 70, 80 by that He point? did this for all four of those films. <laughs> all four of those films, he, they just shoved him out into the convention circuit, and he, he reassured everybody. Um, by the time the Nolan films came along, they learned from the Schumacher films, which uh, had their own level of protest. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, yeah. I, I do want to get to those. Uh, they learned, and... Nobody could escape um, the Warner Brothers marketing department without uh, sitting them down and saying to every cast member, to the director, to the producer, you're going to sit down and you're going to quote chapter and verse. You're mm. going to cite the comics that these are uh, that these storylines borrowed mm. from. You're going to say that you're a lifelong comics fan, uh, and that created the first the, the Burton films and the Schumacher films were uh, the nerds had this sense of. Uh, taking pot shots at Hollywood. Now, all of a sudden, they were completely co-opted, and they were going to the barricades on the behalf of these movies hmm. in a way that became quite weird and toxic. Um, I think it was the final film. It was Batman... Uh, Batman and Robin? No, I think it was the, the final uh, Nolan film, uh, Dark Knight Rises. Before it had come out, there was a single online review that was not... Um, a pan. It was basically <laughs> saying this is kind of bloated and overlong, but it's got some redeeming blah 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 blah. And uh, within an hour of that, that it's not not even a major critic, it's just a syndicated critic. Yeah. Uh, he was getting death threats <laughs> because the nerd community had all of a sudden something that they never had before, which was a kind of a lingua franca. All of a sudden, this thing they loved, Batman. Yeah. That's just power through. Okay. All of a sudden, this thing they loved, Batman, was sports. Something they could talk about with anybody. Mm. Um, they'd never had that before. And, and they felt threatened by the critical community, uh, not accepting this thing the way they had. They had raved over uh, uh, the Dark Knight. <laughs> the Dark Knight. Yeah. Um, and it, it became so... The thing I love about nerd culture is the passion... The, uh, the desire to share things, the thing that uh, is, is the dark side, is that curdles into uh, hoarding very quickly. Yeah. Uh, that, that curdles into... This was our thing. This is no longer our thing. This is everybody's thing. At the same time, though, all nerds want is the, the approval of the mainstream. You see this in the reaction to uh, when The Dark Knight and Batman Begins happens, and critics love it. it, it but there does seem to be a constant struggle between the two. I mean, there, there, there is that. There is the... Um, obviously, they, they, they want that mainstream acceptance, and they want there to be more of them, and, and you know, they, they want that money behind it, but at the same time, the minute that that becomes... I mean, it's the kind of the, the whole punk rock problem, right? The Absolutely. minute that becomes part of the mainstream culture, it's no longer your special thing. The minute everybody thinks they're an expert at Batman... 
where do you turn? Well, this is the this is the amazing thing because the barriers to entry for all kinds of nerdish pursuits have collapsed completely yep. because we have the internet. And we can kind of go online and in an afternoon get all of the Batman canon, get uh, everything you need to know about wine, everything you need to know about. But everything. but even beyond that, they're just they're they're everywhere. They're, they're ubiquitous. They're all they're all over every single form of culture. I mean, you, you know, I turn on whatever channel during in the middle of the day on a Saturday, and there's a there's a Batman movie. Sure, on. and. That's, and at that point, we turn on ourselves. We say to another nerd, you don't like the thing that I like yep. for the same reasons, mm-hmm. to the same extent uh, that I do. Therefore, you're doing it wrong. And so what I'm, I'm writing a piece now, I'm trying to figure out what comes after all this. Once nerd culture becomes culture. Well, yeah, and, and, you know, and, and then when you look down the line and there's 40 Marvel and DC movies coming out, mm-hmm. I mean, there's got to be a breaking point. It's going to settle down a little bit. I mean, it, 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 by its very nature, it has to be cyclical. I was thinking about this before when you were talking about, um, you know, about, about the, uh, well, yeah, I, I guess about the kind of the ebbing and flowing of, of the, the Batman character. And it, um, I suspect that there's probably an exact right a number of films to work before a reboot. And that's probably the way that it, obviously that's the way that it has worked. And that's probably the way that it, should work in an ideal world that you get like you know maybe like three or four movies and then it stops for a little while and then you start Batman over again yeah what what you're talking about is a genre it's the superhero genre like westerns like gangster films like war movies uh, they're gonna they're they're gonna cycle through they're gonna become we're, we're in a glut of them now yeah, um, just the way we were in a lot of westerns in the in the well, 40s well, and 50s. I, you know, I'm speaking about the, the genre, but I'm also just speaking in terms of because I don't see least you know not for the foreseeable future obviously superhero films going away entirely but it just seems like there is i mean you're right there's a story arc there's a story arc that you tell you can tell over the course of like two three movies mm-hmm. um i don't I, I i don't foresee a superhero working quite like james bond for example right um and 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 you know i mean maybe, maybe this is kind of the ideal situation for that sort of movie that we get two three movies out of it there's no Batman for a little while, and then and then Batman comes back. Yeah, but I think Spider-Man came back after only nine years. Well, Sp- Spider-Man, you know, like Spider-Man was a problem of them just not being able to, <laughs> yeah, like no, nothing really cooperating. I mean, that's not the ideal example. Batman is probably the best current example, and then and then there's the weird no man's land that we're currently in with the X-Men movies, which I don't even really know what's happening. The only so. way they're gonna uh, survive is. Uh, and, you know, who knows if they even should. But, I mean, the only way they're going to survive is if there's a variation in tone. If they all are, if they're all the Christopher Nolan, yeah. uh, grim, dour, chilly aesthetic, uh, which it seems is the way that, that DC at least is going, Wanderers at least is going, then we are going to get so bored with it so quickly. And there are people who already are. And I could argue that with this particular approach, I'm there already. Well, yeah, I mean, you, uh, you're obviously a, a Batman and a Superman fan. Do you still... Do you get excited when a when a trailer comes out? Uh, depends. Um, okay. uh, How have you felt with one uh, of the most recent ones? So you know, Batman versus Superman, the X Men one came out. Um, there are there are things that work on the comic book page that when you try to put them into another medium, sure. just come off as hokey. This was one of the many issues with Green Lantern. Uh, this conceit uh, works fine on the comic book page, but as soon as you see it. Uh, it seems paper thin. It well, seems y- 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 you know, a, g- a good example of that, and, and I think that kind of the closest that we've probably come to the 
the Batman 1966 series from the standpoint of them like really trying to adapt the comic book page onto the screen is that Ang Lee Hulk movie. Yeah. Which there's a lot about that movie that I actually really love. Sure. The whole Nick Nolte thing was kind of problematic, but uh-huh. but it was kind of an awesome movie in a lot of ways, and everybody hated it. It mm-hmm. was it was too literal right. adaptation. Well, that's the thing. Yeah, I mean the the one moment that Zack Snyder contributed to um, Watchmen mm. that was not a just flat, <laughs> just transcription <laughs> yeah. of the book in a very wrong-headed way was that that title sequence. Everybody talks about the title yeah. sequence where he basically interprets this yeah. uh, material, and you know. He can interpret it bad. He can interpret it good. But you have to interpret it. Mm-hmm. You have to change uh, the character. The, you have to change the story because you were imposing a story. And, you know, that's fine. Because, again, you're dealing with the idea of this character, not the character itself. The character itself is sacrosanct. This character itself is in the comic books. And he, they'll, they'll, they'll do things to screw him up. But everything comes back. There, there, there is something inherently, and this is not necessarily a good thing, uh, reactionary and reactive in the superhero ideal where everything cycles back, everything cycles sure. back, and everything cycles back. Uh, uh, it's eternal return. So, yeah, I mean, uh, I, it, it, it's, it's a case-by-case basis. I know I'm not looking forward to Batman versus Superman because I didn't get what he was doing with Man of Steel. Uh, that was a film that got certain things right. Uh, there's a line in there where Jor-El says, you can save them all, which, again, if you understand your character's motivation... You're halfway there. Okay, let me let me let, let me put it this way then, and, and I know this is going to be really hard for you. This is very hard for me, but for um, a, just a moment, try to divorce yourself from the critical brain. Gotcha. I know, I, I I understand, but but you know, okay. So for me, it had been a some time since I had seen a movie, a you know big blockbuster that I really enjoyed on just a kind of purely like visceral animalistic level. I mm-hmm. think the last example of that prior to the new Star Wars movie, which got me mm-hmm. on, on every level, but was uh, the, the X-Men First Class movie. Sure. Like I just, I, I, I loved it. Mm-hmm. Um, are you capable of just enjoying a movie on on that kind of pure level? I mean, that's that's what I was able, I, I don't know how I managed to do it, but I was able to, for however long Star Wars is, to not think too critically about it and to really just let it wash over me. Probably with these two characters, no, just because I've, you know, devoted yeah. myself to sure. this thing for years at a time. Uh, and I'm, I'm always putting things in, in context yeah. and trying to see if uh, how, how close it gets to this ideal I have in my head. I can still watch the animated series and uh, revel in it because I do think uh, there is something simple and iconic mm-hmm. and pure. Um, in a lot of ways, because of who these characters are, their visual iconography is is half the appeal. Yeah, um, it's 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 simple. It's visually simple. It's visually simple, and uh, it's striking. And uh, they can do all kinds of crap if if it looks right. Yeah. Um, if the tone hits, um, you know, I mean, one of the things that bugs me about every television incarnation of uh, superhero stuff is the dialogue. The dialogue is terrible. The dialogue is just pure exposition for exposition's sake. And they also, you know, they don't have secret identities anymore because they just tell everybody. But then I realized, I have a theory why that is. It's just that in comics, um, internal monologue is invisible. It's part of the scenery. It's, mm. it's, it's something we don't notice. Uh, on television, 
voiceover is really, really, really distracting. There are necessary evils in both of those mediums because you, you're supposed to be able to just kind of jump in at any point. So exactly. you need some kind of explanation to catch you up to speed. So you need to gather around you, if you're a, su- a superhero on yeah. television, a team of people to whom you explain your <laughs> motivations constantly. Yeah. And every thought you have and every emotion you have, you vocalize and you verbalize to people uh, 24-7. So you keep expanding your team until you've told everybody your secret but, identity. But 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 I, I was I was actually thinking about this the, the other day. I, I I haven't actually watched any of these things yet, and I yeah. feel like a bad nerd because of it. But um, it seems to me that one of the things that I was actually thinking about this in the, in the context of a, of a comedy series um, that you know I mean I mean the, the nature of the sitcom is that it's thirty minutes and then you have to like reboot everything like you said before to where it was before. But what Netflix for example, affords us is this sort of understanding that you're in this from the beginning, that right. you're binge watching, that it's on demand, that you're watching the entire thing. So, you know, at the very least, that can divorce us from that obligation in a sense. Yeah, no, I get that. I agree. <laughs> uh, so, I, I, I know I keep wanting to talk about the Joel Schumacher movies. And, yeah. Um, you know, I, I haven't gone back and watched them. Um, I, I do understand, and, and I actually haven't gotten a copy of the book because I just found out you were in town yesterday, mm-hmm. uh, but um, I, I do sort of understand being an apologist from the standpoint, and you might have a completely different argument, but from the standpoint of like what has bugged me more about these this current crop of Batman movies, and certainly the Zack Snyder films more than anything else, um, and, 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 and I don't really care if movies are for me. I know that not everything... Like, sure. That's, I think, part of being a mature nerd is realizing that not everything in culture necessarily needs to be for you. But I think that on a certain level, any good superhero movie should kind of be for kids, should be enjoyed by children. Absolutely. I mean, there should be something for the adults as well. But uh, I I, I took a lot of issue with this Deadpool movie with with an R-rated superhero movie because you're just cutting out the exact people it should be for. There's There's been this, like, kind of understanding over the past... 15 years and it's really probably my generation's fault that pop culture needs to grow up with us that video games need to grow up with us and mm-hmm. comic books need to grow up with us that you know that it can't just stay in never never land and be for kids forever and maybe i don't know was do, do you think the Schoenlocker movies were an attempt to bring it back around to that to make it a little bit lighter to make it more for uh, a mass audience there is a place for a batman who carries a credit card um as there were in the Schumacher mm-hmm. films. There's a place yeah. for that uh, careful chum pedestrian safety Batman. Um, in the first film that he did, uh, he was more or less doing the 50s and 60s Batman. He wasn't necessarily vamping on the television series, the 66 series. Yeah. Uh, the, the last film was, you know, just cutting and pasting that that aesthetic. There was an camp. actual, there was a holy something or other joke in, the, yeah. in Batman and Robin. But... Uh, I would argue, uh, as a gay dude, you know, uh, camp sure. changed I- between 1966 and 1998, or whatever, whenever it came out, um, because the AIDS crisis and uh, and uh, and a bunch of things. I would argue that uh, the the Schumacher films are not camp. They're, there's a harder edge to them. They're queerer hmm. they're, uh, because. Camp was about, it, and again, I don't necessarily think the um, 
66 series was camp in the gay sense, and that was a word that they assiduously avoided when talking about the show. The producers would not let anybody use the word camp because yeah. it had all these gay connotations. Was it, em- was it embraced by the gay community? Um, not, not, I mean, yeah. I go back all the time. Yeah. Look, uh, you have Liberace, yeah. and you have Tula the Bankhead as yeah. guest villains, and I don't get a thing from this show. I, it's not pinging my gaydar at all. <laughs> It's the the gayest thing about it are probably Burt Ward's tights, his flesh colored tights. It's probably yeah. about as close as it gets. It doesn't it doesn't really come off. At I us. mean, there's always been and you know, and there, there's always like the Fred, Frederick Werther element to it. There's always been kind of an understanding that there's some kind of True. relationship between Batman and Robin. But you don't get that on the yeah. show. I mean, you really, really don't. You do it in the comics all the time. Yeah. There's a whole chapter because you know I talk about that in the Wortham chapter, of course. But uh, yeah, it didn't it didn't ping like I think it was maybe Adam Kitch. West not being in particularly good shape. <laughs> Let's move away from well, that. Well, well, Brian, you know, he was not in bad shape. His stunt double had sure. a bit of a gut. Uh, so that's, that's if you go back yeah, and do right. the research, you're going to see he was actually uh, in fighting trim. Yeah. Was he uh, jacked? No, 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 he wasn't. But, uh, yeah. So I think the the Schumacher films have a, have a sensibility that's queerer. Uh, there's a, mm. there's a, a, something unapologetic about slapping yeah. nipples onto the bat suit. Um, now, he misunderstood what he was doing. Uh, he would tell his team that they're called comic books, not tragic books. This is an actual sure. line he said. Um, kind of on, not kind of not understanding the word comic in the sense that it is, yeah. <laughs> is implied here. So he injected uh, as much garish neon uh, Dayglo paint as he could because he wanted it to be uh, gorgeous and schlocky. But it, it also felt, I mean, it felt to me like it was camp from the sense that it like feels like it's shot on a theater stage or something about it. It's got this very like confined nature. There's these like back alley fights that just feel, it feels like it's watching a stage play. He was a costume designer. He was a set designer first. Sure. Uh, he is all about the, the visuals. And yeah. I will say that there's a moment in uh, the Val Kilmer in uh, Batman Forever uh, where Batman swoops in on a bat rope, and he looks uh, iconic. He looks, mm-hmm. he captures it. He captures the comic book with crystalline clarity. And then you know you've you've got Jim Carrey being Jim Carrey, and yeah, and and all this stuff, which is uh, so the the shots of the uh, Batman strapping on the. Uh, belt and all the shots of the butt and the codpiece. I mean, it's a joke. It's a literal joke. Hmm. He is riffing on Rambo. He's riffing on Commando. He's every movie. This was the coming off the action movie eighties and the early nineties when every action movie had that that shot, and he just took it a little bit farther. Um, I I when I say I'm an apologist for him, I I there uh, those films are uh, batshit crazy. Yeah. Those are shit shows, but not necessarily good. In it. No 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 yeah. no no. But uh, they. <laughs> in honoring in the way that they do the uh, the Batman 66 the notion of mock seriousness as as a key component of the character I think they they do a service did 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 you feel you know when I mean growing up gay reading comics did you was there a, a particular character that spoke to you I mean everybody's looking for that right everybody's looking for their kind of surrogate as we mentioned before some people find it in Batman some people yeah. find it in Spider-Man um, who did you particularly connect with well I mean um, th- one of the things 
that I talk about in the Wortham chapter is uh, obviously Batman and Robin are tended to be a familial bond, mm -hmm. not a sexual one, not a romantic one. Uh, it doesn't matter because yeah. if there's panels where they are lying naked together sure. under tanning lamps yeah. or they're waking up in bed together or they're out in the middle of a rowboat on a pond. Yeah. Um, and this is what Wortham basically said. He didn't come out and say they're gay. What he said was in a, in a culture where homosexuality is a great taboo, uh, the fear of being gay, which these shots of the amazing flowers in large vases in Wayne Manor mm -hmm. could could uh, evoke, could uh, sure. uh, elicit in yeah. boys, uh, could cause those boys uh, guilt, shame, feelings of sexual maladjustment. Uh, he had a point. He just didn't have the point he thought he did. That is not true for straight kids. Straight kids are not going to look at Batman and Robin and be like, hmm, what's wrong with me? What's going on here? Hmm. Gay kids will. I did. Uh, you know, I that's mean, interesting, though. I mean, so, so his argument was 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 that they, that they it would elicit a feeling of alienation and not um, connection. Right. He that not that it was something they would em embrace. They they would embrace a, the the perceived no. Because again, this was the fifties. Yeah. This was the uh, arguably the most rapidly homophobic time yeah. in American culture when it was all bound up with the Red Menace. It was juvenile delinquency, mm -hmm. homosexuality, and uh, communists. All they the were fun all, stuff. Yeah. They were all coming together. <laughs> they were all coming for your kids. Yeah. Uh, and. Yeah, and and so like I mean I spent a little bit more time uh, looking at uh, the quadrants on uh, Batman's ab abdomen than perhaps my peers did. Mm -hmm. um, it's just you know one of the things that Schumacher noticed is that the superhero culture embraces the the the, the male body in the same way that gay porn does, and there is a crossover there. There is not. There, there's not a, a, an explicit connection, mm -hmm. but the iconography is very, mm -hmm. very similar. The, the, the pu more purely visual component, uh, there's something there. Hmm. And so that's what he was doing. He was just uh, sho shoving it in people's faces. So in a way, you know how the, the 66 series had uh, kids and adults mm -hmm. as two different audiences that was, it was working on two different levels. The Schumacher films, gay dudes, Everybody else. That's hmm. that's the kind of way that they work. W was that was, was that conscious on his part? Have you I doubt it. You know, I doubt okay. it. I just think that's where this guy is coming from, and it leaks uh, yeah. into all of his very visually striking but pretty empty work. Is there? I, I mean, is is there a, is there a subculture around? I mean, is there have people gone back and in, embraced those movies? I haven't heard anything about this because they just seem to be widely panned kind of across the board, but have people sort of gone back and reappropriated them? Uh, certain elements of it, yeah. yeah. I mean, in a, in a very uh, cursory way. I, yeah. I, I don't think you're going to see any sort of gay movie nights devoted to these, to these hmm. things. Uh, it is fascinating, though, that he introduced a Robin. The, the script called for a much younger Robin. Uh, he introduced uh, Chris O'Neill, gave mm -hmm. him an earring, a tank top, uh, uh, a buzz cut. Basically made him, you know, made the connection between them Sure. Rough trade and leather daddy, in a in a in a way that just seemed to him to make a lot of sense. I got, but I, I guess if you're gonna um, have those implications on the table, you might as well make it with somebody who's of age. No, right, absolutely. <laughs> no, that's that's a much healthier. Yeah. you could argue. Bob Kane didn't get it. Bob Kane, the he was a good soldier, and to the public, he'd go out there and say, "I think this is great. He's got a great chin." This is what he said every time that whoever who was Batman at the time had the right chin sure. because he used to draw basically Dick Tracy. Uh, yeah, Batman is yeah. unbelievably square jawed. Uh, but he went up to Schumacher and said, I don't get the earring. I don't get <laughs> what's going on with the tank top. And uh, I don't get the nipples, he said. 
What was Schumacher's response to that? Schumacher's response is this is just who he's doing. Yeah. He wanted to bring them closer to what he called Hellenic statuary. Um, now, there's a lot of gay dudes who keep, you know, torso art in their houses for the same reason, because they just appreciate the male form, you see. <laughs> There you go. That was Glenn Weldon. Uh, we actually had that conversation prior to my, my reading his book. He was in town on, on a media tour. Uh, uh, I have since had a chance to read it. It's called The Cape Crusader, Batman, and the Rise of Nerd Culture. Out now on Simon & Schuster. Cannot recommend this thing highly enough. I, I, th- I thought I knew something about Batman prior to reading his book, but there was a surprise on, on pretty much every single page really really fascinating uh thanks so much to glenn for taking the time to do that uh thanks to everybody for listening to this episode if you like the show please rate us on itunes uh follow us on tumblr it's rylcast.tumblr.com if you have any feedback it's rylcast at gmail.com like us on facebook and as i mentioned at the top of the show um for the first time ever we are coming to you with our Tails between our legs, and, and asking if you have uh, if you're if you have the capacity, if you're able to, please donate the show. Um, we are we've, we we've we've never sought donations before. We we don't run ads right now, but obviously it uh, costs money to do a podcast. Um, if you listen to the show all the way through, this was one of the ones that I edited, and it was probably terrible because of it. So if you'd like to. Con- Help us continue to pay for an editor for the show. Uh, please consider supporting us over on our Patreon. You can find out information about that over on our Tumblr. That's rylcast.tumblr.com. Uh, that's about all I got this week. So uh, stick around because we will be back in uh, just about a few days with another episode of RIYL.